Yeah, sorry. Okay, so this place. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to Runaway Finance. Should we take over the banks? Are we really excited to have you here? Yes, is the answer? No, we won't go there just yet. Done. This session is organised jointly by the Fire Brigade Union and Jubilee Debt Campaign. I'm Sarah Jane Clifton, Director of Jubilee Debt Campaign. I'm going to be chairing us. Um, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of um, dissecting global finance capitalism, I just want to say a little bit about how we're going to run this session. Um, first of all, people um, come to the World Transform from all different walks of life with a massive variety of knowledge and experiences. We just want to start by saying that everyone's really welcome. Um, that's why uh, the World Transformed is such a rich place with such fantastic discussions. I want to encourage everybody to contribute to the discussion, particularly if you haven't really contributed to these kind of things before. Please ask questions. Um, our panel's here as a resource for you. Ask questions, share your views. Um, you're really, really welcome. Also, this is a pluralist space. Um, we really welcome uh, good disagreements, good comradely disagreement, but please be kind to each other, treat each other with respect, and we won't stand for any bigotry in this space. Um, so the question that we want to look at um, is what, because we're, we're parallel to Labour Party conference, what would we want a Labour government to do about banks and um, the finance sector? When we say the finance sector, the City of London is so massive, plays such a massive role in the global finance sector that really we're talking about global finance here. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the reasons why. So this month is the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis, the collapse of Northern Rock, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and the resounding message from people who watch the finance sector closely is that another crisis is inevitable. Um, there's been a tiny little bit of cosmetic changes, there's increased equity requirements on the banks, but all of the fundamental structural reforms that were on the table in 2008 have been successfully resisted by the banks. Um, the banks are still too big to fail. Uh, there's no separation between high street banks where your money is invested and the big investment banks that are playing with casino capitalism and the, the global derivatives markets. Um, not only is shadow banking booming, and people aren't aware of what shadow banking is, it's the unregulated bit, the bit that has no oversight by any governments. Not only is it massively expanding, but increasingly our money is exposed to it. So uh, companies like Black, is it Black Rock or Blackstone? George Osborne's one. Black Rock, um, that George Osborne earns £12,500 a day working for, are increasingly investing pensions, people's pensions and insurance, in really high-risk um, shadow banking products, which are increasingly seen as, as risky. So it's not a question of, is there going to be another crisis? It's simply a question of when. And we want to talk about what to do about that and ultimately how to prevent that from happening, how to prevent the cyclical crises of finance capitalism. And to answer that, we have a fantastic panel of speakers. Um, I'll introduce them uh, one at a time as they speak. To start with, um, we've got Matt Rack, um, British trade unionist, former firefighter and general secretary of the Fire Brigades Union. Please join me in welcoming Matt. Thanks a lot, uh, and it's great to see so many people discussing ideas like this. I think it's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, event and fantastic to see. Um, 
10 years after the crash, uh, I think it's a good time to reflect. I mean, I think it is ironic that what we're seeing in the media is spokespeople for the banks are wheeled out to tell us what went wrong then and how they uh, can advise us on it not happening again, i.e. the very institutions that sparked the mess in the first place are, 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 are presented us as some sort of experts on, on what's happened. Uh, I, remember, I remember articles at the time that also argued that one thing this was going to prove was the end of neoliberalism uh, and so on. Actually, we see no such uh, sign at all. Uh, in, in, in my uh, opinion. And for working people, we've seen a remarkable period of, uh, horrific period in many ways, but a, a remarkable in terms of the squeeze on living standards uh, and the fact that real wages are still below the level that they were at uh, pre-2008. And that's quite uh, remarkable. And for those of I represent workers in the public sector, an unprecedented period of public sector wage restraint. First of all, 0% after, uh, after 2010, and then 1%. In other words, real wage cuts every year for everyone working in the public sector, and that is continuing. So there's quite a staggering uh, impact on people, as well as the cuts that have gone alongside that through uh, austerity po uh, policies and so on. And now I'm a trade unionist and the day-to-day the -day job of trade unions is to look after our members' pay and conditions. Um, we're probably a bit of a slightly, I don't know if we're that unusual, but a little bit unusual in the, in the labour movement. We have a clause in our, uh, in our preamble to our rule book that says about the immediate aims, about pay and conditions. Uh, it says that needed, workers need to organise themselves and it's only through workers organising themselves that we can improve things. And then the final clause, is, I find quite a beautiful clause, it says, to this end, the Fire Brigade Union is part of the working class movement and linking itself with the international trade union and labour movement has as its ultimate aim the bringing about of the socialist system of society. So that's written right at the start of our rule, but no, no just don't set our sights low in the Fire Brigade Union. Um, now... Uh, Rosa Luxemburg, the German-Polish socialist, spoke about trade unionism once and described it, comparing it with the Greek myth of Sisyphus, the guy who, if you recall, was condemned to roll a rock up the hill uh, for it to roll back down again every time, and then he had to roll it back up again. In other words, you, you fight a struggle in the trade union, you win a pay increase, and then inflation wipes it out. You, you defend some jobs, and they come back and attack the jobs again. It is a never-ending struggle, and I think it's from that concern that uh, people start to say, well, actually, is there something bigger we should look at, that we don't just want to actually uh, win improvements in pay, we want to look at what sort of society we're living in, and we want to say, are there ways in which we could change it? And I think that's where socialist trade unionism uh, comes from. Uh, and that's why the people who founded our union, who were socialists, put that into the, into the opening section of the rule book. And tying that to events like the world transformed and the election of Jeremy Corbyn, I think one of the most exciting aspects of Corbyn's election is it allows people, it's created space where people can discuss ideas which had been pushed off the agenda for decades. Uh, the ideas of public ownership, the ideas of, uh, you know, Jeremy uses the S word, socialism. John McDonald uses the word, the S word, socialism. Socialism for the 21st century. And it allows us, I think, the idea to start discussing what we mean, uh, what, be, what we mean 
by that. And that's why uh, I think it, it provides socialists and people looking for ideas with the opportunity of, of a lifetime. And so taking that, and I think again, the, the danger of trade unions is we, are, we end up being very sectional. We look at what's going on in our own industry, in my case, the fire and rescue service, and people say, you know, we should stop privatising the fire and rescue service. It's a pretty obvious point for us to make in a way. We took a different approach in the aftermath of the crash to say, actually, this global economic event is clearly having an impact on our members through austerity, through wage cuts, and so on. Uh, and it's also having an effect on every other trade unionist, and it's having an effect on every other worker in this country, but it's also having an effect all across the world. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people around the world affected by this economic event sparked by the banks. And it was that that prompted us to start discussing ourselves what policies we would like to see in terms of, of the economy. Uh, and we spoke to, to, to Michael and another comrade and, and commissioned a book, uh, which is called a, a pamphlet, which is called It's Time to Take Over the Banks. So that's the conclusion we reached, actually, that we support the public ownership of the banking and finance sector. Now, that's a, probably a, a pretty minority view in, uh, in the labour movement, apart from anywhere else. Um, we, we don't want to see big bureaucratic nationalisations. We want to see democracy in public services. We want to see, we, the, we raise the idea in there of banking as a public service, actually there to serve communities and to serve the economy rather than simply uh, something that uh, dominates the, the lives of, of, of millions of people and dominates uh, the economy. So the, the idea of democratic public ownership of the banks, I think, was, was something that uh, we, um, we wanted to, to raise and we accept that it's a minority view in the Labour movement, but uh, we think it is, uh, there's, there's arguments that, that, that can be made. And I, I just uh, finish uh, uh, with a couple of points about where that leads us, because I'll say that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell use the socialism word, and I suspect in this room, if, if everyone is a socialist, I don't know, uh, but if there are, uh, two socialists, probably three different uh, opinions. So uh, there are, there, what we mean by socialists, what we mean by socialist policies is something that we can debate. And again, I think that's something that, that, that Corbynism offers us uh, an opportunity to do. For me, it is not simply about uh, managing the system better than the other side. Uh, and I think that's a danger that we can fall into if we simply want to uh, present to the electorate, we're going to run this system better than the other people. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that will particularly convince people. Uh, clearly, there are issues about uh, taxation, including taxation of banks and so on, uh, and about fairness. But I think uh, for us, going back to our starting point, for us, uh, the system we live under, capitalism, is in its essence, an exploitative system that relies and is based upon the exploitation of the majority by a minority. And while we support measures to improve that, actually, me as a socialist, uh, and hopefully our organisation, or certainly a lot of people within it, uh, support actually transforming that system to make it into something different, into a system that is not based on exploitation uh, of, the, of the majority by, uh, by the minority. And within uh, all of that, I think um, the banking system, the finance system, as was demonstrated by the crash, goes to the heart of some of those debates. 
of, of who really runs this society, in whose interests are uh, these dis huge decisions, decisions made in a, a boardroom in the city of London or whatever, that actually, as we found out, affect hundreds and hundreds of millions of people all over the world. And that's quite staggering when you think about the scale of power that exists within tiny uh, numbers of people, who, whose job actually is a, presented to us in the press and by politicians as, if you like, the, the highest aim you can achieve for, making as much profit as possible, which is said to be one of the most respectable things you can do. And yet, in this case, and in other cases we've seen, it led or it sparked a, a, a crisis that impacted on all of us, all your families, all your friends, and as I say, hundreds and hundreds of millions of other people as well. So that's our starting point, and that's why we think this issue should be debated. Uh, and that's why we asked uh, for, for that pamphlet to be good, and we look forward to a very interesting session. So thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Matt. Our next speaker is Fran Boat. She's Director of Positive Money, a campaign organisation that works to rein in the banks and tackle some of these issues. She's also a Director of Finance Watch, a Senior Fellow at the Finance Innovation Lab, and um, now also Labour Party's Parliamentary Candidate for Gloucester. Fran. Thank you. We were worried that there wouldn't be people here because we know we're competing with Jeremy Corbyn. So thanks all very much for coming. And it's a very, very important topic. And what some people might say, you know, a potential downfall of the next Labour government if we don't take it seriously enough. So I think we're all in this room agreed that we uh, need to change finance. This huge, powerful, complex uh, global system, which, you know, a big part of it is in you know, our capital city, the city of London. And unless we actually do reform it, I think the thing, lesson we should have learned from 10 years ago is that it will undermine all of the other progressive work that we try to do to socialise our economy, to make our economy work for the many. Uh, if we don't tackle the finance sector, then it will only come back to bite us. Um, but that is a serious challenge and it is not straightforward how we go about doing that. And I think that we need to have... Um, a certain reality check on what actually tackling global finance means and how difficult it will be and how it isn't going to happen fast and it is like turning around you know I was going to say an oil tanker but it's much bigger than that and it's shrinking it and there's a lot of powerful yeah 10 oil tankers um, so I think that you know we can't have it both ways we can't um, have an oversized financial sector which serves global financial markets over our domestic economy without it undermining the real economy and without it contributing massively to the financialization of all different parts of our economy. So I just want to talk mainly about two things, which is what Positive Money works on. One is like getting control of the Bank of England. So obviously that's our most powerful macroeconomic institution. And at least for the last 30 years, it's been really serving financial markets. Um, and since the crash, I feel like it's had a bit of a shift in identity. So now I feel like it sees itself as a risk manager. So how can we kind of limit the risk of this beast of this, you know, the, uh, the banks and the shadow banks and finance, which is you know, in inherently risky, uh, 
stability is destabilizing, as one economist said. So basically, our the way our banking sector is designed is to um, destabilize the rest of our economy. So the main kind of outcome of the crash has been, well, one positive thing is that we've added financial stability to the Bank of England's mandate, which is great, but that's about as far as it's gone in terms of how do we make banking serve society? It hasn't really done much else. It's made the banks a bit safer, as Sarah said, cosmetic things, but actually fundamentally, they are still predominantly serving the finance sector, which serves itself and doesn't serve the rest of the economy. So I think it's clear that we need a new settlement on the Bank of England's mandate tools and institutional framework. Um, so as I said, it, it now has financial stability, which is good. But also, if you look at monetary policy, it's basically broken. Uh, we have low interest rates and quantitative easing, which has essentially been flooding financial markets um, with a lot of cheap money, pushing up stock prices, pushing up asset prices, making the rich richer, but doing very little for the real economy, if not neg having a negative impact because of wealth inequality. Um, so that's a major issue. If there's a downturn or a recession, you know, basically the Bank of England's out of tools. It doesn't have anything that it can do really in terms of stimulating the real economy. Obviously, that compounded with austerity has been an absolutely devastating uh, economic policies that we've had for the last, um, you know, 10 years, essentially. So where are the Labour Party in all this? Well, um, they came out with a... Graham Turner just did a report saying that the Bank of England should add productivity to its mandate, uh, which is really interesting and a really kind of uh, shows how kind of radically uh, Labour are thinking. But I think that that just can't be done overnight. And we need to think about how um, actually you'd need to, you know, in the, in the current framework, the Mark Carney was questioned at one of the uh, select committees and asked, you know, does he think that you could add productivity to the mandate? And he said, no, basically, I don't have a clue how I would do that. So there's an issue where the whole way of the way that people that work at the Bank of England think about the economy is, um, is problematic and is essentially uh, neoclassical economics, which is the kind of old way of thinking, markets know best. Um, basically, you know, the financial sector is a real key engine of growth in our economy, pro-market, pro-finance doctrine. And that needs to shift. And it can't be done overnight. But obviously, one of the key things is that you have a governor of the Bank of England that wants to work with the Labour government. And I think that's key. Uh, Mark Carney and George Osborne work very closely together, doing austerity and loose monetary policy. We saw the devastating effect that had. We need to think about making sure that we have um, people in the Bank of England that want to actually democratise our economy, actually see the banking system reformed and actually see a Bank of England that isn't just about keeping the financial sector going as a status quo, as, you know, not even the status quo, you know, where we are now with Brexit, um, Mark Carney and the uh, government, Theresa May, everyone in that kind of circle want to see us doubling down. So they want to see us growing the size of our financial sector. They, Mark Carney said he wants to see it double in size in 10 years. They want to see financial services as being our big driver of growth, exporting financial services across the world. 
And so, you know, there is that risk that, um, you know, that that is just that gets even worse before a Labour uh, party gets into power. So I think there are some really key barriers. And so I think that's why the rethinking economics movement is also really important. Um, so they're all about pluralist economic thinking because we do need new ways of understanding the economy and at people within the Bank of England, as well as outside, people within these institutions. Because if a Labour Party gets into power and we have, a, have to actually run these things, like that's going to be difficult if they all are completely in the pro-market, pro-finance, neoclassical framework. It's not going to be straightforward. Um, so one thing that positive money sees as kind of a wedge issue is getting at least the Bank of England to stop doing QE. At the moment, if, if we had another downturn, it would probably expand its QE program again, even though it's saying it's unwinding it. We're, we've been campaigning for the last few years on something called QE for people, which is basically like, if you're saying you're creating all this money to help stimulate the real economy, why don't you just put it into the real economy rather than financial markets? Uh, also called monetary financing. We could have an, a whole other conversation on that. But why it's an important issue is it really brings into focus the relationship between the Bank of England and the Treasury, which is a really crucial one if a Labour government is going to deliver what it wants to do and reform this economy. If we don't get that right, then it's going to be pretty blooming difficult to make this economy work. I realise I'm probably running out of time a bit. But I just want to talk about... Um, how long have we got? Okay, about another issue, which is... Uh, diversification. So in the UK, we have a real monopoly, a really undiverse banking system. We have four big banks, which occupy 85% of the market share. Now, that is unusual even for Europe or the US. Like We have very uh, limited even credit unions or um, building societies. And what that means is that we have uh, not only a monopoly on our, our lending system, where Almost all the money we lend goes into property and financial markets, about 80%, but also on our payment system. So we think that that's a massive issue. So obviously, National Investment Bank is needed, but something that we could do immediately is um, turn RBS, for example, into a series of uh, regional banks. So there's 65% of it in the... Um, National own, national, we own, the government owns 65% of shares of RBS. There's no reason that, that can, we can buy the rest of them and turn them into a series of uh, regional banks. Apparently, um, I don't know whether it's because RBS are worried about a Labour government and the fact that they have supported this idea, but they've been actually saying they want to buy back, they want to start buying back those shares from the government, I think, because... Maybe they're worried about a snap election. Um, but, you know, there will be challenges to actually getting to have a diverse um, banking system. And we need, do need to think about governance, ownership and diversity at all levels um, because we're just not getting lending into the real economy. We also want to uh, create a public payments platform. Um, and I was going to quickly talk about a few other things, but I realise I'm out of time. But I think that you know, it is important to realise that it's not even just banking. Other forms of debt have exploded since the crash, in private equity, shadow banking. Um, and so there's a lot of different reforms um, that we need. I'm speaking tomorrow with Robin Hood Tax. They campaign for a financial transaction tax, which could help slow some of this down. 
Um, but I do think, you know, although it's a big challenge, that there is hope. You know, Positive Money have just been part of a really big, uh, long couple of weeks of loads of events around marking the 10 years since Lehman Brothers. And like Matt said, I, um, you know, there were a lot of bankers basically being interviewed around the 10 years anniversary, which I thought was ridiculous because they were just like, oh, how exciting was it 10 years ago when the stocks fight you know, forgetting that what has just happened to our country in the last 10 years. So we were there as a civil society voice that didn't exist 10 years ago. And I think that is important. Um, and it's going to be challenging, but I think that it's, you know, it's important that we're getting stuck in. Thanks a lot, Fran. Our next speaker is Michael Roberts. He's an economist. Um, he's the author of the FBU pamphlet um, on public ownership that Matt talked about. He's also the author of some of these books, um, The Great, Rece Great Recession, A Marxist View, and The Long Depression. Well, well, comrades, I've worked in the city of London for various banks for 35 years. I've worked in the heart of the evil axis as uh, George Bush used to call it. And it's not a pleasant experience. And one thing I did learn, many, but one big thing I did learn is that banking at the moment does not operate in the interests of the people. It operates in the interests of high finance, the big multinational companies, and to make big profits for the shareholders and the various other investors and vested interests. And my proposition to you is that banking is necessary but it should be a public service providing places for our deposits of our money, allowing us to get loans at reasonable rates, whether we're small businesses or householders, and that is its job. It should be just as much a public service as transport, as health, as education. It's not seen that way, and my proposition to you is that that is what we in the Labour movement should take with the banking and finance system, and turn it into. And in my second proposition, there's only one way to do that, and that is to have proper public ownership of the major banks, in the case of the UK, the big five, as they're called, some of whom I've actually worked for, and I can assure that it would be a breath of fresh air if we could bring about the end of the grotesque salaries that CEOs earn, the bonuses, the fraudulent activity that has been going on for the last... 10 years and before that, before the crisis. And of course, we talked about how the crisis was triggered by all these multinational banks that brought everything crashing down. What happened to the people who brought this global financial crash down who head these banks? Pretty much nothing. The FT had a piece yesterday, did a survey of where, who got it convicted at the top end of the banking system. Over the whole world, 46 people have got convicted. All of them, or nearly all of them, in Iceland. A small number in Spain. One in the whole of the United States. And guess which country has convicted nobody at top banking? This one. UK has convicted no top banker. On the other hand, down at the bottom, 100,000 bank workers have lost their jobs in the city of London over the last 10 years. One in three have disappeared from banking jobs. So we see who's suffered, apart from ourselves, of course, and austerity and all the rest of it, but bank, in the banking system, it's the bank workers have suffered, not the top people. 
Now, uh, since the end of the Great Recession, business as usual for the banks. Nothing has changed. The big multinational banks carry on as before. Now, Lloyd Blankfein is the head of Goldman Sachs. When asked what he thought about the state of the banking industry and why things have got the way they are in a testimony, he replied, well, I think I'm doing God's work. It's my job to present a truthful and moral view about how banking should go on. Well, Goldman Sachs, the vampire squid of the finance industry, <laughs> is in no way doing God's work if you happen to believe in that. It might be on the other side of the coin as far as blank fines concerned. Uh, Stephen Green of HSBC is actually an ordained reverend. Um, my former employer, of course I never met him, but uh, he is actually a reverend who believes in the culture and ethical, ethical role of uh, banking. Well, HSBC was fined $5 billion by the federal government of the United States for laundering Mexican drug cartel money. Stephen Green also was responsible for looking after private wealth control in Switzerland, where it came about, not just from the Panama Papers, if you know about that, but previously uh, uh, it was a whistleblower who found out that vast amounts of money were being transferred tax-free through avoidance and evasion through HSBC with the full knowledge probably of uh, the chairman, Stephen Green. And only in the last two weeks we hear about Danske Bank. I don't know if you've been reading about that, but Danske Bank's Estonian branch has actually managed to launder $220 billion over the last eight months, eight years, uh, including mainly from Russian criminals. But guess which uh, set of companies are the next in line for having laundered their money through the Estonian branch of Danske Bank? British companies. This is what has been going on. This is currently the role of banks, not to provide a banking service for the people at all, but to engage in what some people call casino banking, or in effect, basically fraud, criminality, and various other means of speculation. Nothing to do with what would be in the interests of people. Now, I don't see how we can carry on in that situation. I, I've got so many quotes here from what people have said about this, it makes you frightened. The one thing I would say is that back in 2004, talking about layman's, layman's opened up a, an office a banking sector in the UK. And uh, it was opened by our former leader, Gordon Brown, in which he said, uh, layman's has a bright future and is an example of the banking industry ahead. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, and it, later on, he, when he was at the City of London, I can find the quote because it always makes me rather upset, um, he said, um, he, yes, uh, he said, Gordon Brown, in 2007, just six months before the crash, uh, he said, we're now entering an era, era for the City of London which we can record as the beginning of a new golden age for the city. The city brings more of the vigour and ingenuity and aspiration that you've already demonstrated and it's the hallmark of our success in Britain. Well... I don't think that's the sort of banking system that I've described to you which has been achieved by that task. I think probably Ed Miliband, another leader of ours, had it put it much better when he said, um, if I can find it again, because I, I've got so many quotes it makes me ill to realise that I've missed them. But here's one. He said, in the old days we had high street banks, we had mortgages and local businesses. 
Since the 1980s, we've lost 200 building societies. There are now only five major banks in this country, and their business is focused more on investment in the global financial markets than it is on our local customers. We need, said Andy Haldane of the Bank of England, a root and branch change in the way that we organise our banks. It simply isn't good enough to carry on like this. Ed Meliband said in 2013, and how right he is, we need a banking system where bankers are not given an incentive to focus on short-term return, a banking system which people can have confidence in once again. That means we need a banking system which serves every region, every sector, every business, every family. We, we want banks to serve the country, not a country that serves its banks. And Ed is right in 2013, and we still do not have that. Now, my argument is that given that the big five banks control 60% of the lending, and do you know what they do with that lending? Of all that lending, only 5% goes into manufacturing and industry, and even less to small businesses. The vast majorities I've used to invest in the global financial markets or to carry out uh, property uh, uh, loans and so on. Nothing is really going into the productive sector. But those big five banks control 60% of the lending. And my view here is it's not enough just to have a national investment bank, which is going to provide, yes, some boost towards investment, we would hope. It won't be enough to try and break the banks up into small bits. It's like saying, we've got one, five big evil ones, let's cut them all up, and then there's 30 small evil ones. That's not an answer in my view, and neither is regulation insufficient. That's been a big success regulation over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. The only clear way forward is for us to bring those big five banks into public ownership. Now, some people say, oh, that's going to cost a fortune. Well, even if we paid it outright at current stock market prices, it would cost us 55 billion or 3% of GDP. But actually, when you buy an asset like that, you're going to get a return on it. You're going to get return through the revenues of those banks that you now control, and you can now organise them to provide the lending that's necessary in the right direction. Why do we stand for renationalising the railways to make it a public service and an interest, but we don't take on the banks, which is even more important in how we control our economy, our lives, livelihoods and jobs? What is different? The only difference, as far as I can see, is a certain fear that the media are going to lambast us uh, because we're proposing their takeover of the banks. Banks don't have to be taken over bureaucratically. They can be run democratically with workers on the board, which uh, Jeremy has been talking about, and they can be run with unions involved and through the government as part of a national plan. Then the question doesn't become whether how much money can we use to get, get the NMIB to do, can we but get the Bank of England to do, print more money to, in a more productive way. If we control the banking system itself and we can begin to organise the economy in a way that provides a banking service and not just uh, a fraudulent, speculative, money laundering operation, which they are at the moment. Thanks, Michael. Um, our final speaker uh, needs a little introduction. Anne Pettifor is a political economist, an author, a fellow of the New Economics Foundation, director of Prime uh, Policy Research in Racco Economics, and also um, uh, economic advisor to the Labour Party. Anne. Thank you very much. Should I use this back? Yeah. Thanks.
Thank you very much, Jane. And first of all, I want to say thank you both to Sarah-Jane and to Fran. These are two women who run small organisations with virtually no money and which have single-handedly raised the issue of finance and the way that the banking system operates against a system which is hugely powerful. So I want to say to you that these women are amazing. And before you leave tonight... <laughs> Before you leave tonight, commit to giving them some of your money, some of your spare cash, to support their, their work, because it is marvellous. So I want to start by saying that um, we are the problem, right? But I, first of all, I want to start by saying that the financial sector saw the crisis as an opportunity, and it exploited the opportunity, and it did so by consolidating, not reforming or restructuring, consolidating the existing order. So today, finance is bigger and safer than it was, uh, sorry, bigger uh, from their point of view and better than it was before the crisis. Before the crisis, bankers took risks on their own account, right? They could lose money. Now, they are, they are too big to fail and they are too big to jail and they take risks on our account, knowing that they are backed by taxpayers. You know, imagine if you're a tomato grower, you grow tomatoes or even Nike shoes or something. The government is not there to back you in event of failure. But if you're a banker, you don't have to worry. If you're a shadow banker, if you run a massive $6 trillion asset management fund, you don't have to worry because the government ain't going to let you go bust and the taxpayers are going to bail you out. And I want to say this is, uh, this, is, this is virtually unchanged. It's worse than it was before the crisis. They're taking bigger risks. The overhang of debt is bigger than it was before the last crisis. Uh, and they're making the same mistakes as they made before because, of course, they haven't learned from the crisis. The ideology that supports the financial system is in place, right? And some of us have been battering away against it, but we've got nowhere, effectively. And I want to say this because I think it's really important for us to understand what our role is in this. And the thing that I've been thinking about lost this weekend is how, when the thing broke in September 2008, the left, the left of the Labour Party, was dumbfounded. We didn't know this could happen. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know that you could blow up the whole global financial system. We didn't know what blew it up. And we'd never heard of any, something called quantitative easing. You need to know that the, government's, uh, the Bank of England's been doing quantitative easing since 1694. They just called it something else. They've given it a new name. This is just mainstream stuff that banks, central banks do. But did we know? No, we didn't. Did we care? No, we didn't. You know, we care about the tangible stuff in the economy. We care about the National Health Service. We care about trade, we care about SMEs, we care about the things, we care about taxes. You know, we care about whether you import or export coffee, you know, and whether it's fair trade or not. This is all tangible stuff that we engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. But what's going on out there, we don't care about because it's intangible, right? Now, the fact is these guys are going to go on behaving the way they do and they're going to go on inflicting crises on us until we do the homework and we understand and we take seriously the financial system. Labour's got a really big blind spot for the global financial system. 
we've got a really big blind spot for it. And it's about time. And they are very happy about that. And I have to say, we're not alone. The economics profession has a blind spot for the finance sector, right? You know, so it's not entirely our fault. Until very recently, the economics profession didn't include banks, debt, and money <coughs> in their models and in their analysis. They think money is just the veil over the real economic activity that takes place, which is you know, what you and I do when we exchange goods and services. They think that's real, and money is just a veil for that. They don't understand that money has its own, <laughs> its own life. You know? And if you let it go, if you deregulate it, it can go off and create vast bubbles around the world. And that what can happen is that those bubbles will burst. And it will be catastrophic, catastrophic for economies. So I want to say to you that you have to take time to understand. And I'm saying this to women in particular, right? Women understand economics very well. None of the real important concepts, concepts in economics are beyond our brief. We, we, we get it, right? Because most of us manage household budgets anyway. We understand money. <clears throat> we understand debt. We've borrowed invariably. We understand if the interest rate on the debt is high. We know something about exchange rates because we've been abroad. We know they can move up and down. This is, these are all the basic concepts you need to have in economics to understand what's going on. So I'm particularly concerned that women should get a grip of this stuff, really, because the boys have been playing with finance out there. They're all boys in the city of London, and they're the ones that have messed up the economy, and we are the ones that pay the price. So it's about time we just got a grip of all this stuff. So um, if I might just plug my book, that's why I've written this book called The Production of Money, because it's not rocket science, but we've got to get it. Because if we don't, if we focus on the National Health Service and all of those nice things that are tangible and we ignore what's going out there, it's going to happen again. And the thing that worries me is that we're probably going to get a Labour government, a Corbyn-led Labour government, after the next financial crisis. Okay? And there's going to be a massive mess. And we're going to be left to pick up the pieces. And that's going to be hard. That's going to be really, really hard. And, and I'm, I really want, therefore, the Labour government to be prepared for that. And for that, I want to see us thinking big time. And the biggest thing we have to think about is capital mobility across borders. The reason why we have 263 billion amounts of dollars laundered through Estonia is because we, the people, have allowed the banks to move their money across borders without any friction without any management of those flows of borders, across borders. And we, we, between 1945 and 1971, during the Bretton Woods period, we managed those flows. When I say we, our governments and our central banks managed those flows. And there were no financial crises anywhere in the world in that period, right? And then the Tories and the City of London lifted those controls over capital flows in 1971, Nixon dismantled the Bretton Woods system unilaterally, unilaterally. Uh, and in, in August, in September, the City of London removed controls over the creation of credit and the rate of interest on that credit. And after that, we just had, we just had, we had massive expansion of too much money chasing too few goods and services. This led to a very substantial increase in inflation in Mrs. Thatcher's first few years. And it was blamed on workers. 
It was blamed on the labor movement. Wages were said to be responsible. We still haven't fixed that. Last week, inflation went up and the Financial Times once again blamed wages. It's got nothing to do with wages. It has to do with the dollar and oil price rising, and that's what's pushed up inflation. Wages haven't pushed up inflation. But so long as we don't understand these things, we won't be able to fight them back. So capital mobility across borders has to be managed. Secondly, credit creation should be managed. It shouldn't be up to bankers just simply to decide. And thirdly, the rate of interest is one of the most important tools in the economy, and that should be managed too across the spectrum of lending. Those are the three things that I would hope a Labour Party and a Labour government would take very seriously and, and act upon. And if we do that, if we stop those fraudulent bankers moving their money across Estonia, I can assure you that overnight we'll change the system. And of course, then we've also got to reintroduce Glass-Steagall. So these are reforms that are not rocket science. We can understand them. We can do them. Um, and, but we need the movement to want this, because unless we understand the way the system works, we're not going to be able to change it. And it is for us to understand it if our elected politicians are going to take any action. Thank you very much. Okay, so thanks everyone. We've got a list of proposals. Um, public ownership of the big five banks, um, breaking RBS down into regional banks, uh, uh, capital controls, credit controls, um, and uh, putting uh, changing the way the Bank of England, uh, what it takes into account, so things like productivity. Um, there's lots of, lots of suggestions there. Um, we have about 45 minutes, um, and which means probably at least a couple of rounds of questions and comments from you. I'm inviting comments as well as questions, but please keep the comments short and concise. Um, if you talk for um, much longer than a minute, I'll ask you to wrap up so that we've got time for more people to contribute. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is, um, please, if there's, there's a lot of jargon in um, discussions around finance, that is one of the main ways in which the bankers and the finance system is able to exercise so much control by making this all of this extremely opaque and complex. So if you've heard terms like Glass-Spiegel or quantitative easing or anything that you don't understand, please ask. It's probably, it's probably not just you who doesn't understand that. It's probably lots of people who don't, and you'll be helping everyone. Um, so, hands up, uh, questions and comments. Looking for a woman in, to start with. Have we got any? No. Yes. Thank you. Our economy seems to be, um, you know, we, we look at gross domestic product. We're, we're um, you know, obsessed with gross domestic product and I wondered how that fitted in with this uh, taking over the banks because it doesn't seem to fit in with a finite world. Uh, right, back here. Hi, um, so obviously there are a few proposals about how we can reform the banking system. I guess what I want to know, how much is possible to do on a national level because the uh, the financial system, more than any other uh, system really, is so international. As you said, capital can move across borders with such ease. Can we really go about how easy is it to nationalise banks just in the UK without doing it elsewhere? Is this something we can do outside the EU or even just Europe-wide? So, yeah, that's my question. 
Thanks, great question. Um, I've got the, sorry, I'm going to make you run around. <laughs> this guy here. And then I'm going to try and take another woman. And then you're, you're next. Uh, yep, that kind of fits in with the, uh, the last question, really. Um, it's to do with the, the offshoring aspect, which I think was mentioned in the uh, blurb in the programme. Um, the kind of amount of wealth that's half offshore is, seems to me a, to be a kind of modern form of uh, enclosure. Um, would the panel like to comment on uh, what realistic steps the Labour government could be done, and again, whether it's something the Labour could, uh, in government, do on its own, or whether it would have to be an international effort. Thank you. Who did you say? Oh, yeah, with the red glasses. Or green jumper. Who's got the green jumper? Oh, yeah. So uh, the lady with the green jumper, and then the guy behind her. Thank you. Um, you mentioned credit creation, uh, the control and management of credit creation. Could you maybe elaborate on how you imagine a future and different system of credit creation to look like? Yep, thank you. And then uh, white t-shirt. Yes. Uh, excuse my simplistic question. It's about functionality. We need a clearing mechanism to exchange payments, which is what arose from the need for a currency or a token of exchange. We also need a building society, or in other words, a savings and loans, as the Americans would say. I'm astounded at the aspect of people keep saying, we get the big five, we nationalise them. Why don't we just look at simple functionality and have one clearing bank, like Gyro Bank might have been, and one savings and loans company? Great, thank you. So I'm going to come back to the panel. You're next when I come back. And then I think we've got at least time for one more round. Um, we've got GDP. How easy is it to nationalise banks in one country? Uh, what to do about offshoring? Um, what would credit controls look like? And um, uh, what would a payment system look like? Should we just run? Should we do the same order? And you can pick up which ones you want to speak to. on the question about uh, and, and the national solution I think that goes to the heart of uh, a lot of this um, and you're right I think that one is we live in a very globalised economy uh, in all sorts of ways including uh, the financial system and yet when we discuss politics we discuss it generally on a, a national uh, level and I think that's a big uh, problem for us uh, because the truth is I don't think there are solutions uh, fundamentally within the boundaries of the UK for example um, and I think one of the I, I have to say I don't think we've begun to scratch the surface of the problems that a Corbyn government might face we've seen this in the past of, of what happens Le left-wing governments don't have a great record by the way of either surviving uh, or 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 delivering uh, and much as you know I want to see a Corbyn government I want to see it survive and deliver I think we need to, we, we need a much bigger discussion about the threats that will be there to uh, a Corbyn government uh, some of them um, economic threats some of them political and some of them very dangerous and subversive threats and we need to be aware of that as well uh, and I think therefore we need to to certainly start a debate 
that actually there aren't solutions within the UK. We need an international movement. And if you take the whole, again, the past uh, 10 years and the question of austerity across Europe, for example, uh, we've seen, I mean, it's affected different countries differently, but we have seen uh, horrific examples of uh, austerity. Greece stands out uh, as, as one of those. Uh, and I've been on delegations to Greece to see the impacts on Greek workers, Greek trade unions, and so on. Uh, and uh, w so if those common experiences are there, and it's difficult, different, difficult, difficult language differences, the fact that we, we generally discuss politics, as I say, within the nation state, but actually we as the labour movement need to be starting to say, actually, we need to build genuinely that international uh, movement. And I have to say, I don't think the European labour movement did enough to support, for example, Greek workers in the aftermath of, uh, of the crash and imposed austerity. So I, I think that is, and it's not something that's going to happen in, in the immediate, but I think it's, a, a, if you like, a strategic aim that we need to set ourselves to build on, on that level. Um, so, first on the GDP debt, I think that is a big problem. I've lost the person who asked the question. Oh, yeah. So, we did a paper at the beginning of the year actually called Escaping Growth Dependency, where we focused on why do governments specifically obsess about GDP? There's obviously the fact that in the mainstream discourse, like they get harangued by the mainstream media on whether their GDP figure is going up or down. And if it's going up, then everyone thinks they must be doing a good job. But also, you know, we live in really high debt economies now. And if you're in the government, do you, one of your easiest ways to try and get that debt, that private debt, um, not talking about public debt, although obviously that's taken over the narrative that public debt's a problem. But even if, say, the Tory government didn't worry about public debt, it would still worry about private debt. And one of the best ways to manage that debt is to grow. And so that's why we do think, you know, all of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of needing a, a banking and finance system that actually gets money into the real economy and doesn't just kind of continue to inflate asset prices and continue to get people in more and more debt is really key. And in terms of, well, you've uh, advocated for a household debt uh, cancellation um, and these things are really important, but we do need to look at how we, we move away from a, a high debt economy. Um, and that's some of the work Positive Money does. In terms of national level, you definitely can do still a lot on a national level if you've got the political will and leadership. So just in terms of um, a, a kind of central bank policy, uh, you know, outside of the kind of, of Europe and the US, there are central banks like in India which have um, something called credit guidance where they actually have to say like a specific amount of bank lending has to go into the real productive economy. Um, so it's very possible to do that. Obviously, you know, it's more complicated than that when you look at how, you know, the, the kind of most powerful central banks work together and how they influence each, each other. They have a thing they go to every year. Oh, I've forgotten the name of it now. Anyway, Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole. And, um, you know, it's not that straightforward that, 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 that they just go it alone, but it, it's technically possible. Similarly, like, we could do RBS tomorrow if we wanted to. There's no reason why... You know, th there is obviously uh, quite a lot of difficult things to work out, and it, it does have global operations. But um, so my suggestion would be, rather than, for example, trying to nationalise banks all at the same time, you might just want to try one, like RBS, see how that goes, because uh, it isn't straightforward. Um, definitely agree, offshoring is a problem. Uh, 
probably someone else on this panel knows more than me. Um, in terms of the last one on, on, do we just want one bank? I think that that's, I, I, kind of research shows that you want, in generally in, in most things, uh, diversity creates resilience. So you want to see different types of banking models. Like it's not just, we don't just want the, the government to own a big bank. We want stakeholders in local areas to own a bank that serves their needs and they will understand the needs better than a kind of command and control centre. Um, but I do think that there's a massive case to bring back the post office bank. And I think that's, a, you know, there's an, obviously we need to nationalise the post office first. But... Um, but I think that you know that could be what part of the picture. But I think we should stop ourselves going down this line of like there's one solution because we do need a diversity, and that will create also the other question on credit creation. Um, that will create banks that want to serve, say, a national investment bank that wants to do the big infrastructure projects versus a small bank that wants to do small SMEs. Um, so I mean, positive money kind of has advocated in the past that we should, banks have done a really shit job of allocating credit and we should just stop them being able to do that job. They should be able to lend people's savings and try and attract people's savings before they can lend, but essentially have um, an inability to create credit on demand. There's lots of reasons why that might not be the best idea, but I think that it's definitely something that we need to think about in the mix is like, how do we actually... Uh, you know, get the credit allocation that we need. And I think diversity in banking is really important step along that route. So, uh, Okay, so so on uh, GDP, just to say gross domestic product is just the adding up of what's going on in the economy, right? It's growth that we have to worry about. And growth is a neoliberal term recently invented in the 1960s by the OECD and Sam Britton. And it's a term which gives uh, targets for, for ac economic activity which are exponential. And we don't have to have exponential targets. We can have a target which says, look, we'd like to have full employment. We think unemployment is a bad thing. When it gets to full employment, we then have to worry about what to do then. So we need to worry about levels of activity in the economy, but we don't need to have exponential targets. So I don't want us, if we're on the, the other side of the neoliberal fence, we shouldn't use the word growth at all. It is their word for Im embedding in our language the notion of continuous, you know, this is a plant which is seeded and lives and grows, but it never matures and it never dies. And just by using that term, we reinforce that notion, as I'd like us not to do. Now, second thing, I mean, on the international question, it's a really important question. We do need to have international coordination. And until, you know, George Osborne and the neoliberals took power across the world, it was just given that, that central banks and governments would uh, coordinate and cooperate to keep the whole economy stable. Now they believe that actually they can't do that. They shouldn't do that. It should be left to something called the market, right? We've got to end that stupid ideology. But I want to say this, and, and I should have said this in my speech. The fact of the matter is we can change an awful lot. We must remember that these private banks are massively dependent on public subsidy, right? So every bank has deposits in the bank guaranteed by whom? By you and me, the taxpayer, right? On behalf of the government, to the tune of £75,000. Now, the government can say, sweetheart, if you're not going to lend money to SMBs, if you're not SMEs, if you're not going to lend productively, if you're going to use lending to gamble and speculate, we're taking away the government guarantee. 
We can say that. It's not a big deal. You just say that to the, the president of the bank, that the government's considering withdrawing their guarantee. Tomorrow they're going to change policy, right? Secondly, the banks draw on our central bank. They need the currency called sterling. The only reason that sterling has any value at all is because it's backed by 30 million taxpayers. If you go to Malawi or to Zambia, they have a currency that doesn't have the same value as sterling. Why? Because they don't collect taxes. They don't have a sound tax collection system. They don't have a criminal justice system which upholds contracts. They don't have all of these systems which underpin our monetary system, which are funded and created by taxpayers. But the, we taxpayers don't understand that we, have, we do that and we give it to them free and unconditionally. So when we bail out RBS, we didn't say you can have 45 billion of taxpayers' money, but these are the terms and conditions. Alistair Darling didn't say that. He said, oh, no, 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 no. We want you to be kind to your shareholders and we don't want you to sound as if you, you've been nationalised, right? But this was our money, but with no terms and conditions. You know, the banks need access to QE from the central bank. But the central bank is a nationalised bank. We nas Labour nationalised it in 1945 because the Bank of England messed up in the 1930s, catastrophically, right? So it's a nationalised bank. So for the Deutsche Bank and Citigroup and Goldman Sachs to have access to, Q to QE, and they do, right? That is a centralised, nationalised bank that is backed by you and me. It would not have its authority if it didn't have 30 million taxpayers behind it. But what do the 30 million taxpayers say? They say, do as you please. You know? We don't mind if you have access to our central bank. We don't mind if our central bank lends you money at 0.25%, but 8% is what the little SME company down the road has to pay. We don't mind about that. We don't even know it happens. So I want us to understand that we, the public, the taxpayer, sustain and support these institutions and we therefore have leverage. We're not helpless. You know, this, this is not a defeatist situation. We can change things if we understand our power. Thank you. Well, the question is right to ask about GDP. In GDP, banks apparently create value. This is nonsense. Karl Marx explained that 150 years ago. That who creates value? You do. When you work, when you produce things, and when your company takes that and sells it and appropriates a profit from you out of that. That's where value is created. What banks do is that they move that value around like a, uh, a process of circulation when no extra value is created. And it's not just Karl Marx who said that, but... It, Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, wrote a recent report in which he said banks have no value. In fact, they actually probably detract from value. So GDP doesn't really tell us what's going on in the real world as far as we're concerned. What GDP tells us is what the capitalists want to hear, which is how much profit they're making, how much value they're creating. So GDP is, a, is of use to capital. It's not particularly of use to labour. And that's why it's something that... Uh, only you can really look at when you start to look underneath GDP and see where value is really being uh, made. Can we do something at a national level? Well, I, I say again, I don't know why, and I have to be a little bit uh, cruel here, why we have to go through all this mealy mouth process of saying we're going to control this thing, we're going to regulate, we're not going to bail you out unless you uh, 
do what we say. Uh, we're going to uh, only give you money if you, unless you do what we say. Well, why don't we just have them? And then we can decide what they do with that money, what they do with that lending to invest. The big five, as I say, control the vast majority of lending, and they will decide five times as much investment in this country than the NIB ever will do. And yet, nobody is proposing that we do anything about what happens with the CEOs, the bodies involved. No control. The only way to get real control is through ownership. Does that mean that we're faced with international disaster because it'll be in this country? We can still introduce, as Anne says, capital controls to ensure money is not flowing out. In fact, the only way that the Comrade's going to get any tax havens dealt with, 7% of world GDP being hidden by the rich, is when we take over the banks so we can see what's going on. I just gave you a whole litany of examples of where the banks, private banks, not controlled by the state, supposedly regulated, are engaged in all kinds of fraudulent and money laundering activities. Do you think that's going to go away if we say, oh, don't you do that? No, it's not. We'll take them over and make sure that they can't do it because it'll be our bank. One bank, one postal service, one national health service, all democratically controlled and accountable. What's wrong with that? Why do we stand back from saying that this is the way we can get a public service out of banking instead of being used as an asset-stripping, speculating, fraudulent, criminal activity? Okay, we're going to take another round. Um, starting with the guy here who had his hand up from before. This, this gentleman in the grey jumper. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to maybe deepen the problem a little bit because I, I, obviously I agree with all of the things that have been suggested and I agree with, with, with you know what, what the, the basis of the problem is that we need to deal with it. That's absolutely clear from this panel and I'm really grateful for the panellists for making that clear. I want, I want to also just, I mean, I'm not being sycophantic here. I really think it's important that the FBU is commissioning this work. It's a little bit late, but, but is commissioning this work on the 10th anniversary of the, of the crisis. But it's very, very, it's very, very important. And actually, in 2008, there was a huge opportunity for the trade union movement, particularly the TUC, to make the finance sector, the City of London, their main object of campaigning and pressure and, and reform, and they failed to do it. The trade unions failed to do that. And so I think this is a really bigger question about social power, because challenging the power of the City of London is not something that's going to be done easily or just by passing a few acts and... Uh, statutory instruments and so on. It's going to need an incredible amount of social power in the trade unions, in workplaces, on the streets, in our communities to make sure that the bankers know when they resist, and they are serious, they, they will resist seriously with serious power, more than we've seen in this country maybe, maybe for 100 years, that we need to be prepared to ha harness popular power. And it kind of goes back to Anne's point. That's the thing that we're really... Uh, that's not a criticism of the, of the panel. I mean, it's a criticism of all of us, you know, that we're not taking seriously how we need to harness the social power that's necessary to challenge the City of London in, in, in a serious way. Because otherwise, Matt's absolutely right, left-wing uh, Labour governments are doomed to fail precisely because they need to make sure there is social power 
in the workplace, in the communities, and, and, and on the streets. And we've got, a move, we've got a movement which is leading us, that positive money and those kind of organisations, but they also need the social power behind them to, to affect change. Lady in the red glasses. <laughs> I wanted to raise the issue of the, uh, the war on cash and, and to ask the question, what, why isn't that being treated as a more political issue? Um, and I think that's important for, for... I think there's two points I want to make about that. The first is that cash is public money. And what we, it's, a new, it's a new enclosure. Uh, it, it, the, and we're being nudged in all sorts of ways to digitise payments. Um, and... Uh, and obviously, there's massive rents to be made when, once we're pushed to. So that, I mean, from the point of view of of uh, privatising the means of exchange, it's really important. But at the same time, it's a huge distraction because there's this idea that somehow the problem of corruption is all these small, untraceable amounts of cash. As if, I mean, everything we've heard today tells us that that's not true. So I think we're being massively misled by this war, war on cash that's going on at the moment. Diane, the green jumper here. Um, so I hope it's not too much off topic, but basically the Feds went full QE, and Iceland nationalized the banks and Europe went full austerity once the crisis did hit. But crisis didn't always come from the banks. So say we have a national banks, what sort of tools might we have in our hands to mitigate the next crises to come along? Because you said QE is a terrible thing. Say it will be another tulip bubble happening or something. I'm going to take a couple more, is that all right? Yeah, I've got the lady, the lady here. Hello. Uh, right, yes, I, I went to the Summer School of Social Banking in Barcelona in July, and that, um, social banking for the common good is, is another thing that we should maybe be thinking of, like Triodos Bank, uh, Ecology Building Society, etc. Um, and um, social banking is, is quite a substantial part of the banking in Germany, as is local public banks, the Sparkassa, and they've been helping Ireland to put together a programme of how to have uh, local public banking in Ireland, which is promoted by a lot of the smaller um, political parties. And uh, I know the guy who's dealing with that, and he says that they say the outreach, Sparkassa outreach programme, that you just cannot have private banking managers working in public banks because the mentality is so totally different. And the social banking people say pretty much the same thing, that this profit maximisation men mentality just will not translate over to a public benefit mentality. So, um, but I don't agree with the one bank. I think you've got to have lots of pr local public banks, really. Thanks. Um, so this guy's had his hand up for ages. I'm going to take these two at the back and then come back. <coughs> Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, so I agree with this chap who was talking about 2008 when there was a real chance for change. Um, we could have taken over one of the banks there more than we did and had real power into it. Um, I'm just going to give a bit more the balanced thing of what's happened over the last 10 years because I, I was at the Bank of England as like graduate in 2008, 2009. People didn't know what was going on. I was very junior, but the Financial Stability Directorate hadn't done much about banks. So it, it, 
lots of things were new. Um, you got some people like Andy Haldane who were very out there talking about what we could do, but it's a conservative place. So my question is going to be really for, for Fran and others. How can you engage more with the Bank of England and others? Because some people are really open to doing things. And I will put out a couple of schemes they did do just to give them some credit. They had a funding for lending scheme which gave money to people if they lent to corporates. They tried that, but it wasn't big. They've tried to have things like living wills. So when banks go down, we know how to dissect them. They've tried to do things like the macro prudential stuff. So they're trying. I want to know what you think is positive. Hi, so I've tried to write uh, software for credit unions and that kind of thing, and I've always butted up against the payment system. Dealing with BACs is a nightmare. Dealing with Visa and MasterCard is also a nightmare. PayM, I haven't tried yet, but I'm going to predict that it will be about as relaxing as bashing your head against the brick wall. Um, it's, we also have um, kind of, a, so you need 50 million pounds to start a bank, you need one million pounds to start a building society, you need about 12 people to start a credit union, but it's not the 1970s anymore, and people are used to being able to have debit cards and uh, sort codes and bank account numbers and that kind of thing. Um, we pretty much never... Oh, and the last, the last building society that was founded was founded in 1980. So there is, there is not a fat lot of growth here, and the payment system is how we are going to get that growth. And the technical barriers to starting these new institutions that are mutually owned are ridiculously high. Um, if anybody has any views on how to fix that, that would be great. Hi there, I just want to go back to um, international issues again. Um, seems to me the main sort of control and power in, in money is well, two things. There's the petrodollar, which uh, means that oil has to be traded in US dollars, and countries that don't like that tend to get invaded. And uh, the other thing is, is the swift payment system and um, the uh, system of international settlements. I just wonder if you can sort of comment on that, please. Brilliant, thank you. I'm actually, um, I'm really sorry that there's still lots of, there's still... That I think we need time for you to answer, yeah. Um, hmm? You think you can take... No, really? no, I mean, we could do a round of answering. We'll do a round there. of answering, and then we can squeeze you in at the end. I know you've had your hand up. You've had your hand up. I'm sorry, but I think we should come back to the panel. Um, uh, and particularly as well, no one has really talked... We still do have a bit of a blind spot about the, the UK's role, the, the, the role of finance based in the City of London on everybody else. So we've mostly been talking here about how we protect ourselves from finance. But actually, um, London, the City of London is the second biggest global financial centre. It was the first, but Brexit has put us down into second position. Global finance likes UK law because it's trusted to protect private property. 90% of the bonds which are owned by sub-Saharan African governments are owned under English law. So I would like to hear from the panellists as well about what our responsibility is to the rest of the world, to everyone else's financial stability as well. Should we do the same order? Okay, I'll just pick out a, a few. That's, uh, so a couple of people mentioned uh, you know, small local banks and credit unions and some of the difficulties 
around credit unions and, and people's expectations of modern ways of using, uh, of making payments and so on. And I think, I think that there is a, a room for all those types of initiatives, examples to be supported. And the trade union movement's done a lot of work around credit unions over the, uh, in, in the past uh, 20 years or so. So, should we tell them to wind it down a bit? Sorry, okay. Um, so, they're plotting a coup next door and how to resist it, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, we need to listen to that one as well. Um, so, uh, credit, credit unions, all, and one of the, the value, one of the aspects of value that I can add is it, I think it gives people um, experience where, where ordinary people can learn about some of these issues and, and how to manage uh, things, how to. Uh, take initiatives and, and take control in a way that normally they're completely pushed out of. However, I think the problem comes back to the fact that where does real power sit in the financial system? It sits with the big banks. And we can create as many alternative models as we want unless we deal with where the power lies. Ultimately, that power, I believe, will crush us. Uh, and I think that's what evidence uh, shows. And um, I wanted to touch on the question of, of the, the, the role, the responsibility of the banks, and can we have more responsible banking systems, and can we have uh, change the behaviour? Um, and actually, Boris Johnson made a point about in a different context. He made it a point about um, tax tax avoidance and tax evasion uh, a couple of years ago. Obviously, on the left, people make a great play about how big business avoid taxes uh, and so on. He said actually. Business has a duty to its shareholders, and that's that's their, their their responsibility is to make as much profit as possible and to deliver that profit to their shareholders. And it's a perfectly rational, rational and reasonable activity for them. And I think Lord Clyde made a similar point in the 1920s, whatever, said no person has any obligation to pay taxes until the tax tax authorities come to make them pay. It's, it's, it's not something that anybody has any moral obligation. That's and it. Okay, it might sound quite shocking, but if you think about it, that's the harsh reality of the system under which we live. And I think we need to, to face up to it. And I, therefore, I'm not convinced we're going to change the behaviour of these institutions whose ultimate role, ultimate function, is to make as much profit as possible for their shareholders. And that's the reality. I just wanted to make a point on the, uh, the, 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 the comrade who, who mentioned Labour governments. I'm, I'm actually talking internationally. I think if you look at left governments around the world. So we, most recently, I think a lot of people were inspired by Syriza's uh, victory in Greece. And actually, it has all ended pretty uh, badly and, and with a demoralization in Greece. And I think for, the, for those of us who looked in that, in that direction. But you can, you can see case after case after case of left-wing governments coming to power and either facing you know, the, the very harsh power of the system uh, through using the economy to say, you simply will not do this. And it's and it's it's some you know it's, it's outside of economic theory in a way because it's politics and it's power and that's but that is what happens they say you will not do this or we will do this to you uh, and you know Chile you know I, as a teenager I was uh, followed uh, and heard exiles from Chile Chile who said well, a great example of a socialist government being elected into power aiming to transform the lives of people and being undermined internally economically 
and then internally, with the support of the United States and others, but internally, ultimately, militarily. And I think that's, that's you know, okay, I'm not saying we're expecting a military coup as uh, imminently, but when you get generals, after, after Corbyn gets elected, so say, when you get generals going on the, into the media saying that a Corbyn government would be a threat to national security, then that is quite uh, worrying. So I think the, 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 then you move from the sphere of economics into the sphere of politics and, and power. And the question was asked about the TUC. And I, I, the truth is this. The truth is that neoliberal thinking has crept throughout the Labour movement. Uh, it, 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 it's dominated the last Labour government. It dominates many unions. It dominates, it probably dominates the TUC in reality. So we all say we're not neoliberals, but actually I think it's built into the policies of the last Labour government. And in reality, until the past three years, nobody was willing to break from that. In the aftermath of 2000, and we commissioned our, our pamphlets, I can't remember what year, it was, it was shortly after the crisis that we, we commissioned it. 2012 we did it. Uh, but we went to the TUC, uh, you know, the, take this, the independence of the Bank of England. You know, the, the TUC is committed to supporting the so-called independence of the Bank of England. I think it's an it's issue we should uh, debate and, uh, uh, at least, but that's the, that's the TUC's approach. Uh, the TUC supports uh, a policy of a national investment bank and so on, regional banks and so on. We took a motion to the TUC in 2009, 2010, I can't remember, uh, calling for public ownership of finance. Um, we faced a bit off. In, in the end, we won that. It was the first time in the TUC's history that it's passed a motion calling for that. I have to say it was then rapidly forgotten, as many things at the TUC are, but we did put it on the agenda. War on cash. Well, this is another example of how basically banks through digitisation are ripping away the right to... You've already put your money under the mattress. Why can't you? Why can't you protect your income? If that's what you want to do. And if you don't, if you're going to have everything digitised, controlled by the banks and the central bank and therefore by the government, which is what is happening in India, for example, then in lots of poor people who don't have an operation in the banking system are going to have their money ripped off them. And, of course, that money is going to be used for God's purposes, uh, and so you don't need to worry. This is a real step back uh, in the interest of the rights of individuals, uh, and uh, as it is for the process of, of tax evasion. I just mentioned, the, I mentioned Stephen Green uh, carrying out, presiding over all that tax evasion going on in Switzerland back then. Well, one of his uh, board members was a guy called Lord Fink, who was a conservative treasurer at the time, good name, he said, what do you think about this tax evasion that Stephen Green's been engaged in? He said, well, everyone does tax avoidance. My children were under 18, and I wanted them to have something to help them make their way in a wider world. Uh, so I, I'm sure that all your 18-year-olds, if you have them, will be looking to be helped by you through tax evasion, which I'm sure you want to do on a big scale. Um, yeah, we don't need one bank as such. What we need is a publicly owned banking system which starts with controlling and owning the big five. Then we can diversify to the level of the local and state and even credit unions. The German system is one which I think is a model which we can incorporate into an overall public uh, banking system which opens up that diversification. In fact, I wrote a short paper which outlined taking from Delinka, I had discussions with Delinka's finance spokesman about how we could integrate that into a national investment board and banking system in the UK, linking together regional banks. I think it's perfectly possible, and all the other things, including uh, bank uh, building societies. But public service banking is what we want. 
I'll give you just one example. Over in North Dakota, in North America, a right-wing Republican state, after the Great Depression, they set up a state bank. It's the main bank in North Dakota. Do you know what North Dakota does, a state bank? It gives, it collects all the deposits of everybody who deposit with it, and it gives loans to the farmers and loans to the households. Anything else? No. It doesn't speculate in the worldwide markets. It doesn't buy derivatives. It doesn't do all the, the games that the multinational banks are on. What happened to North Dakota Bank during the crash? Nothing. It still made a good profit, which feeds back, by the way, to state coffers so that they can use it for other purposes. That's the sort of banking system we want. That's the sort of system we should apply. And which, if, if, if people are going around like using English law to get round it, then we need to change that law as well to make sure that banking, at least in this country, is a public service, controlled and run by the people, and we will struggle and promote that idea elsewhere as well. I'll stand up as well. Um, so first of all, on social power, I think that's a really important point. Uh, we did a rally outside the Bank of England last day to commemorate. Were you there? Okay. Yeah, I mean, there was probably about 100, 100 people there, but I, I mean, I was worried there wasn't going to be anyone there. But there should have been a lot more, right? If we kind of, a lot of us agree, this is going to be the biggest challenge for any kind of socialist feminist, hopefully environmentalist government, we're going to need to take on big finance. And so, you know, it was it was really, um, you know, well received by the media, actually. So, you know, it would have been great to see more people there, but it's, you know, it's going to take. But I think that actually the, what I was really happy about was we partnered with awesome organizations. So Unite was a partner. So seeing you know, our biggest trade union with 40,000 employees that work in financial services, being there was really important. Um, and we need more. We need to collaborate more with the trade unions. Just a, a kind of big up. The TUC's uh, chief economist definitely isn't neoliberal. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree with Matt's point on, um, on the fact that obviously neoliberal thinking has been everywhere and anywhere. Uh, war on cash, that's a really... All really amazing questions. Um, so we, my colleague who's sitting in the back did a really good paper earlier this year on the future of cash, and he's been working really hard on bringing a civil society voice into this conversation because it just isn't there. And obviously Visa and MasterCard, they want to get rid of cash, and there's no actual public body's role to protect cash. So something that we're calling for today think in the observer is that it should be the payment systems regulators role to actually protect cash because it really is under threat where will that hurt people the most the people on low incomes um, generally people with mental health issues etc rely on cash a lot more so it's disproportionately affecting those groups and that's something that we're really passionate about and it, I'll just link it to the payment system question because we also kind of have linked that work together in a way because we kind of see at the same time a need to protect cash, a need to make uh, all of our means of payment fairer and we think we need a public payment system to do that. Um, and you know there is loads of kind of disruption coming through fintech, good, you know, bad, a lot bad, some good. So we're trying to put out a voice for saying it can be good. Um, we think that there could be a, a kind of fair democratic way of doing a digital cash system so that we all have access to a public payment system. Um, and so that's something that Positive Money works on. Um, 
social banking is uh, obviously great. Um, and I think that it's been a market. You know, when you work in changing the big finance sector, you get pretty... It's quite. A, it's a long slog, but obviously we need a lot of committed people in it. But I know a couple of people that you know have been in it since the crash and have since gone on to help set up banks in this country. So we've got a Great in London mutual starting. There's a mutual starting in the southwest of England. So we actually do. There's an issue where we don't have the skills and the people that want to do the job of literally building new banks and building them with a social purpose. But that is happening, which I think is really exciting. Um, your point on the, the bank, you were at the bank uh, 10 years ago. Uh, good, well done. Um, I don't think people knew what to do, um, but I think that, you know, it takes time. And I think the, the Bank of England has moved. You know, isn't we training, I've had two meetings with Andy Haldane, and he's, he seems to think, you know, we try and play an insider role and an outsider role. And then, you know, they do say useful things, but then they do really unhelpful things. So we do need different people in the bank. Um, yeah. And then I just think the other side of the international thing is that it, it, we all need to play a different role. So hopefully by getting a movement that wants finance to serve the UK domestic economy, we also tackle part of the reason that it's so extractive and so damaging to other countries around the world. So there's just too much to talk about, but I think the, um, the, the the war on cash question was a really important question, is an important question. I mean, the banks can't believe their luck. In order for them to get cash from the central bank, they effectively have to hand over collateral and they have to pay. Now, if what the more we use those little cards, we wave at a little machine to buy a coffee, the less it costs the bank. But they get a bonus, they get our data, and that's much more valuable. And they can't believe that we're so complicit in this process and we're so happy to hand over our data for nothing, right? For absolute. Now, I am began a little personal campaign. I'm not going to use my card in big uh, outfits like Costa Coffee and so on. I'm going to insist on cash. And that would be a quite revolutionary thing for us to do while we're building social power. Right, is to actually force them to hold cash and deal in cash by saying, sorry, but I don't have a card, but no, I'm not prepared to use my card, you know, and here's the cash. And keep going to, now they're closing down ATM machines, they're making it harder to get, cash is like sort of sucking, it's been sucked out of the system. And we've got to fight back against that because this is a conspiracy. But it comes back to Max, Matt's point about how we're all neoliberal, right? We've all built bought into the rent-seeking thesis at the heart of neoliberalism. How many of us here use Uber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're embarrassed to put up your hand, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> How many of us... I am presently staying in an Airbnb here in Liverpool, right, you know? Now, people who, who, who rent out their cars and their labour are doing it because they probably are low-paid and they desperately need to supplement their income. So I'm not, I'm not criticising them, but I'm saying it is a magic thing for a company to sit in Silicon Valley to construct a little app by stealing software from Google and from the, the US Navy, which invented GPS, and putting it all together in a little app, and then extracting 20% from every single ride and sending it back to Silicon Valley, and we play the game, 
right? And the same with Airbnb. These are all massively extractive, rent-extracting outfits that we participate in. And now we're playing the, cash, the, the digital cash game. We're playing with our cards. We love going into the coffee shop and just waving at something and not having the bother of cash, right? They can't believe their luck. We could be subversive. We could be refuse to play these games. We could refuse to use Uber drivers, and we could refuse to uh, use our cards. And that would begin to cause pain to the banks because it will cost them. So I think that, that that's part of building social power, really. It's a, a little step that we could take which could make a big difference. <laughs> Sorry. There's a plug. Is that a plug? All right, do a very quick plug. Okay, thank you. I'm really sorry we are going to have to wrap up now, but before you go, can I just say thanks for coming. I hope you've enjoyed this festival. The World Transformed is made possible by volunteers. They don't take any corporate sponsorship and they try really hard to keep rates affordable. So please consider becoming a committed supporter. You can find out more on the TWT website. Thank you for coming. Enjoy the festival. Thanks to all our speakers. <laughs>